Welcome to the Dermatology Podcast, the official podcast of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. I'm Christopher Horskamp. And I'm Adriana Juraszek. And we are your hosts. This week, EADV's Dr. Sarah Walsh will be interviewing Dr. Bevan Boyrule on the topic of fibrosing alopecia. I would say that that's one of the most important things that we concluded from from our study, the, the distinction between, uh, with androgenetic alopecia or androgenetic alopecia with seborrheic dermatitis. But before we get into it, face-to-face courses are back. Specialists, residents and now nurses all have the possibility to attend EADV organised courses. We're looking forward to meeting you in some of the most beautiful cities in Europe. To see what's coming up next, go to eadv.org and check under face-to-face education. If you're not an EADV member, have you thought about becoming one? Benefit from access to on-demand webcasts, online courses, 19 medical journals including EADV's esteemed JADV, over 20 textbooks, reduced fees for congresses and symposia and much, much more. Go to eadv.org under membership for more information. Recently, today's guest, Dr. Bevan Boyrule, and his co-authors published an article, Clinical Pathological Characteristics and Treatment Outcomes of Fibrosing Alopecia in a Pattern Distribution, a Retrospective Cohort Study. Today, we hand over the podcast to Dr. Sarah Walsh, who has a few questions about Dr. Boyrule's research. Hello and welcome to this EADV podcast. My name is Sarah Walsh. I'm a dermatology consultant in London, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Dr. Bevan Boyrell, who is a consultant dermatologist now working in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, I reached out to Bevan because I was interested by a recent paper he published in the JEADV on the topic of fibrosing alopecia in a pattern distribution. And so Dr. Boyrell was actually from Newcastle originally and is now living in the Southern Hemisphere, graduated from university in 2005 and originally trained in general practice, I believe, uh, before dermatology. And he was in receipt of a prestigious Jeffrey Dowling Fellowship, uh, which is what allowed him to travel to Australia um, in part to undertake this research. So hello, Bevan. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Australia. Thank you for having me. So Bevan, just tell me a little bit about how you came uh, to uh, be trained in Newcastle and then end up in uh, in Melbourne. Thank you, uh, Sarah. So yes, I, I, I did my medical training in, in Newcastle. And then, as you said, I initially trained as a GP and then I had a bit of a change of heart, uh, decided to train in dermatology, which I did in, in Leeds. Um, so... Um, I always had um, had an interest in hair, and uh, coming towards the end of my my training, I started looking into where I could further that training. Um, and at the time, there weren't very many hair fellowships around. There certainly weren't any in the UK. Um, and uh, I, I attended a a, an, uh, a conference, an AD conference, um, in 2017, I believe, uh, where I met uh, Rod Sinclair. Who, um, who since then has become my my mentor um, and is, is in Melbourne, Australia. Um, but around the same time, um, and more importantly, I, I met my wife, who is Australian, and uh, and uh, surprisingly had uh, had a place um, about fifteen minutes down the road from where where Rod Sinclair's clinic is. 
So that worked out quite well. Well, that 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 must have been a sign, great <laughs> serendipity. And for our listeners who don't know, Rod Sinclair is a very eminent um, and well-published uh, dermatologist uh, working in Melbourne with considerable expertise um, and a big research um, setup, which is focused on hair disorders. And, uh, you know, he's obviously working in a very specialised setting there. And um, Bevan, can you just tell us a little bit about his specialist clinic and what sort of resources uh, that you have at your disposal there and whether you run MDTs and clinico-pathological conferences? Um, so so we, we're, we're quite blessed that, that, that we, we have a lot of, of tools and, 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 and people to help us. Um, so we're, it's, it's, it's a private setting. Uh, we predominantly see patients with, with hair loss, adults, children. Um, and um, we, uh, we have at our, at our dispo disposal a number of tools that really make our lives as clinicians easy, easier. We have uh, very qualified photographers who are very well versed with scalp photography, um, demoscopy, um, as well as, as things like hair counts. Um, we also have access to, to certain treatments which aren't uh, widely available, things like platelet-rich plasma, hair transplants, and and those sorts of things, um, which which really help. The fact that, that the, the the clinic is run privately um, so means that you know things like meetings are few and far between. Um, however, there's a big emphasis on on teaching. There are some some junior fellows who who work there, and and uh, and uh, there's a weekly teaching program for them. Um, so it's it's. Uh, if hair is your thing, it's a it's a great place to work. Uh, it sounds like an amazing setup, somewhere where clinical practice and research can really can really uh, flourish. And and just focusing a little bit now on your on the paper you've recently published uh, in the JEADV, can you tell us a little bit about the entity fibrosing alopecia in a pattern distribution? Because I have to say, in my uh, my probable ignorance. Uh, I hadn't actually heard of that before. So fibrosing alopecia in a, in a pattern distribution, and I'll, I'll, I'll say FEPD because it's it's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, well, it's it's a primary secretorial alopecia of, of the lymphocytic type, like lichen planus pilaris, like frontal fibrosing alopecia, and it was first described in 2000 by Zinkenagel and Trube, uh, who described a series of 19 patients, uh, 15 women and four men, who developed. This odd uh, scarring alopecia in a diffuse pattern on the on the central scalp, and they couldn't quite well. They, they sort of didn't quite call it LPP because it had it had a, a distribution that was very similar to that of, AG, of androgenetic alopecia. So um, so that was the first description. So the the, the difference with uh, classical LPP is that the, the the alopecia in FAPD is is diffuse as opposed to the uh, the, the the multiple patches that we often see with LPP. However, histologically, it shares a lot. It, it shares several signs uh, with LPP, like the interface dermatitis, like the the fibrosis and the loss of sebaceous glands. Um, it appears like F, like FFA to be more common in postmenopausal women, and uh, and the the cause is is still unknown, as you might imagine yeah so that was going to be a question i was going to ask it sounds from the introduction to your paper and from the referencing that this is an area which is not very extensively written about yet in the literature which makes obviously your paper 
very a very important contribution given the size of the cohort. Would that be would that be fair to say? That's right. Uh, unfortunately, with the rarity of the disease, the, uh, the the literature is limited to to case reports and small case series. Um, yes, our our study was a was a, a retrospective stu study in, in you know, sort of a relatively small sample size, albeit probably you know the the largest one to date. Um, but yes, we we uh, we characterised uh, FAPD in in our our clinic. And just out of interest, I, I noticed in the methods um, that you there were some cases that you drew into the cohort that had uh, you know a label, a diagnostic label already of FAPD. But there were some that you picked up when you went back and did a case review by looking up the patients with a diagnostic label of LPP and with a concomitant diagnosis of androgenetic alopecia. What, how many in the cohort were people who were retrospectively relabeled as FAPD? And how many from the cohort had the existing label FAPD? So it was the majority of them who were, were relabeled, uh, not necessarily from retrospective review of their records, but when they were subsequently seen in clinic. Um, some of these patients had been attending for years with, with the diagnosis of androgenetic alopecia. Um, so um, I I can't quite remember how many of them you know we went back and 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 changed the the diagnosis for, but it was the majority of them, um, with a minority that were newly diagnosed uh, with FAPD. So it more reflects um, it more reflects an evolution in the terminology and uh, the development of our knowledge of the different patterns of hair loss. Is that is that correct? That's right, and and also um, Sarah, also you know very importantly, I think it well it certainly was in the past, but it still is uh, misdiagnosed as androgenetic alopecia or androgenetic alopecia with seborrheic dermatitis, for instance, I'm sure. which I'm sure. um, which mm -hmm. which can be a problem. Uh, because one of them, of course, is an irreversible scarring alopecia, whereas the other uh, has has a has a better pro prognosis. Mm -hmm. So, really, making this distinction is quite critical, would you say, in terms of sort of therapeutics and how you how you approach the patient? Um, absolutely, I would say that that's one of the probably you know the the, the most important things that we concluded from from our study, the, the distinction between, uh, with androgenetic alopecia or androgenetic alopecia with seborrheic dermatitis. If, if FAPD is, is mistaken for androgenetic alopecia, then, then you'd be de depriving patients of potentially hair-saving anti-inflammatory agents, and, uh, and, and therefore uh, you're not going to stop uh, disease progression. But also um, you could offer the patient false hope of hair regrowth and even offer them a hair transplant, which could end in, end in tears. Absolutely, and and you refer indeed in the discussion uh, to the concept, which is much bandied about in dermatology, um, of, of splitting rather than lumping. But you think that in this case, the splitting approach to get a more precise diagnosis is is more helpful. Um, it's it's a good question, and I think there are arguments in favour as well as arguments against. Um, there, there's there've been a couple of papers, one of which was was in in the either in the Blue Journal or the JAD case reports, where they they made a good argument for for lumping. Um, now the uh, and 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 they talked about um, the uh, distinction between LPP, FFA, and FAPD, and suggested that there is there is not much value in splitting them uh, on on the grounds that all three 
uh, are characterized by irreversible scarring alopecia with very similar histopathological features uh, other than the, the hair follicle miniaturization that, is, that we see with FAPD, but not the other two. Um, and they also put forward the argument that we don't, we don't really understand the etiology and pathogenesis of these conditions, so why split? But in my, in my opinion, while you know, I agree with all of those points, um, the, the conversation you have with patients, which ultimately is, 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 is very important, can be quite different. If you had a patient with FFA in front of you, you know, then, then they should be informed of the possibility of losing their eyebrows. And in, in men, uh, their beard, you know, which, which we often see. Um, we don't see that really with, L with classical LPP. Um, we do see it, well, sometimes with FAPD, but it, it's far more common with FFA. Um, when it comes to the etiology of these conditions, uh, we, we still don't, don't, don't have the answers. We know that FFA and FAPD are overwhelmingly more common in postmenopausal women, which is not really the case for um, LPP, suggesting a possible role for hormones. And as you, as you probably know, sun, sunscreen use has been reported to be more common in patients with FFA although this is still very controversial. And probably, you know, the, the, the last thing I would say is that therapeutically, there is now some good evidence to, to suggest that 5-alpha reductase inhibitors of finasteride and jutasteride are effective for the treatment of FFA and possibly FAPD. But they haven't been shown to be, but as far as I know, there's, there's, there is no evidence for, for, the, for the use of these agents in LPP. Well, I think you make a very compelling argument because I think, you know, from my own exper experience, which is much more limited of dealing with hair patients, one of the um, overriding questions they have when they come into the consultation room is what is their prognosis? And I think you make a very uh, persuasive argument that this splitting approach will enable you to do that part of the job and, uh, you know, quite a lot better. And one other part of your paper, which... Um, with which I could kind of sympathize because my own area of research and clinical interest within dermatology is severe drug reactions, which are, you know, rare and infrequent cases. But um, you, because of the rarity of the disease and because it's been so recently described, the range of interventions described in your paper is very disparate, rendering comparisons quite difficult. But could you give the listeners from your clinical experience a strategy that you would employ for a distressed patient newly presenting with FAPD? So yeah, you, 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 unfortunately, you know, the, 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 with our study being retrospective, that, that was one of the weaknesses. So, you know, the, the treatments were, weren't standardized. Um, well, the, as, uh, as the, the, the treatment of a lot of scarring alopecia still remains very, very frustrating. Even the, the, the ones we've known about for a long time, and, and I think FAPD is no different. However, I personally have had some good results with a combination of anti-inflammatory agents with, with uh, uh, hair growth promoting uh, drugs. So the anti-inflammatory agents like we commonly use um, and which we probably recommend first line would be topical or interlesional steroids. And the, the hair growth uh, promoting agents, uh, minoxidil, or 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, so either topical minoxidil or oral minoxidil, uh, low-dose oral minoxidil, if you, if you have access to this. I have rarely used systemic immunosuppressants. Um, most of the time, um, it, a steroid combined with a, with a hair growth agent uh, is enough. Um, but I think that 
um, you know, the, the conversation uh, with the con conversation about camouflage should be had early with with patients because some patients, especially those who are who are diagnosed late, can have extensive irreversible hair loss. Um, and and as with all scarring alopecias, obviously that hair isn't coming back. So so the conversation about wigs or hair pieces or other other camouflage techniques should be uh, that that subject should be brought up early. That that is a very interesting area, and obviously in the setting that you're working in, the private sector, presumably you have a, a number of camouflage options available to to your patients. Aside from wigs, what other th sorts of strategies do you do you tell them about? So yes, we that, that's uh, that's something else that that we're we're fortunate to have. We uh, we have a, a trichologist uh, who counsels patients uh, about the uh, the most suitable form of, of camouflage. So a wig uh, would be uh, for some someone who has extensive hair loss, you know, as as someone with alopecia totalis, for instance. Um, for patients who have sort of diffuse hair thinning then you you know there, there are there's other things there are for, for example um keratin fibers your know, patients may have heard of brands called uh, such as topic um for patients who have uh, sort of you know this might not necessarily just be for fabd but hair loss confined to one area of the scalp so with ffa for instance where it's recession of the of the frontal temporal hairline um, um hair pieces that are that are custom made for those patients and we our trichologist is pretty good where she's able to to sort of tailor the hairpiece um, according to the patch or patches of hair loss that the patients have so it's a very very bespoke sort of approach mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and just to go back a little bit and we've spoken a couple of times uh, during this podcast about the importance of histopathology and what would you say the role of histopathology is in the diagnosis of fibrosing alopecia in a pattern distribution? And what sort of histopathology expertise do you have access to in, in Melbourne? So uh, we, we, uh, we have um, a couple of dermatopathologists that we work with. Um, and well, um, I, uh, we, we had to talk to, we, we had to, to talk a few times because I think even in the even among pathologists, you know, this condition is is very new, um, and and we, uh, you know, a, a lot of these conditions have been labelled as LPP or uh, just scarring alopecia. Were signed out as scarring alopecia uh, previously, so we we kind of developed a uh, a synoptic uh, format for the for the pathology, you know, together with the pathologists, and we agreed on on features to uh, to um, report. Um, and, and they've been very good. And the, you know, the, the features, in addition to the, the features uh, that are commonly uh, described, we had uh, additional things such as hair counts, terminal to vellus ratio, um, sebaceous gland density, uh, the, the level of the, of the uh, whether the inflammatory infiltrate um, uh, targeted terminal hairs or uh, miniaturized hairs. Um, and using that approach, we uh, we were able to come to the diagnosis um, uh, better. But I think uh, to answer the first question, I think it is very important unless uh, you're you're experienced uh, in the diagnosis of hair disorders, uh, simply to uh, you know to avoid the the uh, the um, 
the mistake of misdiagnosing this as, as androgenetic alopecia. Now, there might be some cases which do turn out to be um, AGA with seborrheic dermatitis, um, in which case, obviously, that's good news for the patient. So I think you should have a, a low threshold for, for performing a biopsy in these cases. And as you say, having performed the biopsy, to then have excellent clinico-pathological correlation, because as you say, a pathologist looking at a specimen in isolation from the full clinical picture will never will never give the uh, the, the the correct answer for the for the patient. So, just in terms of uh, future directions, Bevan, because this is clearly uh, very much in its nascent uh, phase, this FAPD. I guess the scope is there for setting up some diagnostic criteria that would have both clinical and histopathological components? Well, there was there was a review of the condition that's already been uh, published in the Blue Journal, actually. Um, um, and that, that was either last year or the year before, uh, where they proposed uh, a set of criteria which included the, the distribution, so the um, so hair loss in the androgen-dependent areas of the scalp, you know, typically the central parietal scalp, the um, typical um, dermoscopic features with the loss of follicular ostia with uh, uh, features such as perifollicular erythema and scaling and the um, and the pathological features which are you know the features of LPP the infiltrate around the uh, the isthmus or infundibulum of the hair follicle fibrosis loss of spacious glands as well as hair follicle miniaturization so yeah the, so that the criteria were proposed, and I think it's a good set of criteria to work with. Uh, we may, uh, in time, sort of uh, better characterize this disease, both clinically and histopathologically, and and refine those criteria. But I think, uh, um, as a starting point, uh, those criteria are good. So yeah, that was uh, yeah I, yeah that that was in 2020. That was published in the in the Blue Journal. And it's been largely accepted by the the hair community as a, a reasonable set of a reasonable starting point for diagnostic criteria. Yes. And of course, now will have to be applied, I guess, to larger larger cohorts of patients. And also, in terms of future directions, do you feel that there is scope to further refine and indeed define define the best treatment approach for these patients? Well, I think so. I think uh, we're, we're still um, struggling with conditions such as lichen planus pilaris. Um, but the, um, we're, we're making headway now with conditions like alopecia areata and to, to some degree androgenetic alopecia. But I think, uh, I think you know, the, as with other scarring alopecias, um, unfortunately, I, I think it will take some time for, uh, to develop, uh, certainly to develop approaches that, that patients are happy with. Um, many patients want their hair back in the conversation that, that you know, this is an irreversible scarring, scarring alopecia is often quite hard. Um, but yes, I think, I think uh, you know, there is still some progress to be made in, in the world of scarring alopecias, and FAPD is no different. Well, I'm, I, I'm sure the, the patient cohort, which, as you say, they, they are going through a condition which can be quite devastating to them psychologically, will be very grateful for all your research efforts. And Bevan, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you, and you've really brought this paper to life for me. Thank you. You know, I've learned a huge amount that I didn't know before, and I'm sure that I speak for all of my listeners uh, in thanking you very much for your time today, and uh, we wish you well with your future work in the world of hair dermatology. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
And that's it for this episode of the Dermatology Podcast. Of course, all of the research presented today can be found in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. Though you can find some free access and open access articles, EADV members benefit greatly by having access to all articles and content. We would like to thank Dr. Bevan Boy Rule for sharing his research, Dr. Sarah Walsh for moderating the discussion, and thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts and make sure you get the newest episodes delivered right to you. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to presenting more interviews, research, and other topics of merit. Until the next episode, take care of your skin.